Sick Boy Podcast is a health and comedy show about what it's like to be sick. Wait, is that right? How can illness be funny? You'd be surprised. Okay. Sick Boy is hosted by me, Brian Stever. And me, Taylor McGilvery. And myself, Jeremy Saunders. Come on in and join us to melt your heart, learn something fascinating, and bust a belly laugh. Trust us, you'll be glad you did. You can find Sick Boy on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your pods. This is a CBC Podcast. Hey, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Q. I hesitate to say this as it definitely wasn't the happiest year of all time. But if you go back to 2020, what do you remember? A pandemic, staying inside, wearing masks, baking bread, Zoom birthday parties. However you remember it, you definitely remember it. And for the comedian Z-Way, 2020 was the year her life changed. Take a listen to this, and I'll explain. Under what circumstances would black people look alike? They were wearing masks. The answer is families. In families, black people look alike. Don't you think black people have families? Yes. Yes, you don't think black people have families? Baited. This is going well. That's a clip from Z-Way's YouTube show called Baited. So here's the story. Z-Way was a writer for TV. She was on shows like Jesus and Mero. She'd been an intern for Stephen Colbert. And then she had this little YouTube show called Baited, where her conversations were a lot like the one you just heard, sort of blurring that line between confrontation and comedy, something we'll get back to in just a second. Anyway, during lockdown, when everyone's on their phones, Z-Way starts doing a version of that show on Instagram Live. There'd be a split screen. Z-Way would be on the top half. And on the bottom, there'd be like some celebrity or influencer who had done or said something racially insensitive. And she'd ask them uncomfortable questions like, how many black friends do you have? Or what do you qualitatively like about black people? Or when you say the word black, do you capitalize the B? Mind you, this was all around the time the world was going through a racial reckoning due to the murder of George Floyd. So needless to say, Z-Way's show blew up on Instagram, and that ended up being turned into a TV show, a late-night comedy show, also called Z-Way, which got even bigger guests, you know, Fran Lebowitz, Bowen Yang, Phoebe Bridgers. It's important to mention this at this point. The Z-Way conducting all of these interviews is a character, also named Z-Way, but that didn't stop people from being afraid of her in real life. Z-Way has just released a book of essays. It's called Black Friend Essays, and she joined me on Zoom to talk about it in her career so far. What's the sweet spot between confrontation and comedy? How did Stephen Colbert's speech in front of George W. Bush inspire her? And for someone who makes a living talking to people, what was it like for her to write about herself? Unpleasant, terrible. I really don't <laughs> enjoy talking about myself at all. I don't know about you, I but it. I would rather listen than I would talk. But that's sort of the exercise in writing a book of essays is allowing myself to be the protagonist and to share my perspective. You, you, I've heard you talk about the difference between, um, or there being a difference between Z-Way the character and, and Z-Way the person. What, what do you see as the difference between the two? I mean, Z-Way as a character is someone who asks confrontational questions that bait people into saying things that are uncomfortable. Z-Way the person goes to the grocery store and buys toothpaste. They, they're just in different contexts, and therefore they're different people. Joining me today is the brilliant singer-songwriter and ally to the Black community, Phoebe Bridgers. And if I stabbed you in an alleyway, you have to call 911. What would you say? What's the description? As an ally, how would you call the police? Let's role play. 911, what's your emergency? Um, I was just stabbed. 
By who? By my friend Ziwei, who I just met. And what's her race? She's black. Baby called the cops on black people. I don't think I, I'm that nosy in real life. That would be a very exhausting job. Right. Yeah. It would be kind of. It would be kind of. Uh, it would kind of wear you out to to be that person all the Who time. Who want to be friends with that person if they were constantly, constantly um, investigating? <laughs> well, well, I kind of wondered about that because I mean, a lot of us met you during the pandemic in 2020, the same year. Um, of course, George Floyd was murdered, and you hosted this Instagram Live, kind of a talk show. Um, I, I want to hear a little bit of the show again. Just take a listen. Now, I saw on your Instagram that you were promoting Black authors like um, Wesley Laurie, who wrote They Can't Kill Us, and then you, Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander. Austin and Channing, let's go! Totally tiny. Layla Safad, like, exactly. let's go! Now, you're a vociferous reader. How many of these books have you read? Honestly, of the nine books that I recommended on my Instagram, I've read four. Wow. And But, I, but I've ordered the other five from Black Bookshops, so I would like my allied cookie now. There are no cookies in this game. So that's you, that's you and the author, Caroline Calloway, in conversation, which racked up so many views. I mean, it, it became sort of a, a cultural moment and led to you getting a comedy talk show on Showtime. And I guess the reason I was wondering a little bit about the difference between the person who goes and gets toothpaste and and the person who's sort of asking confrontational questions on, on TV is that you write about a little bit about that in the book. You write about how people have said to you, you know, I'm, I'm afraid of you. And people will walk up to you and say, I would never want to be interviewed uh, by you. T- tell me a little bit about what it's like, what it's like hearing that. Like, h- how is the show and the character you play affected how you engage with people in, in real life? So people have, are, people have been afraid of me my whole life, honestly. So the character is de- derives from my personal experiences and traumas. And that's why I was able to write a character that exploits awkward um, encounters for comedic relief. It's because these are the encounters that I have in my real life that I've always thought like, wow, I wish there was a camera on me to see how wild this is. And now I've actually manufactured that into a show or an interview program. The the chapter, um, one of the first chapters that really stuck out to me is is the chapter you wrote about sort of the question that, you became initially famous on Instagram Live for asking around how many black friends do you have? And on the show, you'd ask the, the guest this question. What did you think was so powerful about that question? I had no idea that the question was were, was powerful, was worth my time. It was just sort of a filler question that I would ask in between other questions I preferred. But as I kept asking that question in one interview and then the second and the third, I found that people would always offer the same answer to how many black friends do they have four to five Mm -hmm. and suddenly what i never really considered as an interesting question really pointed at a specific um trend in in my audience or in my guests ability to to like cite how many black friends they have four to five seems sort of inoffensive but also like it could be a reality and so i appreciated that it made me laugh that 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 was something that was a pattern coming out of that question yeah, in, in the in the chapter, you sort of dive into what's sort of revealed by that number, four and five. Definitely. It's inoffensive. It's like a basketball team. <laughs> yeah, right. If you if you say too many, it's it's one thing. If you if you don't say any at all, you might be perceived a different way. And I think at one point in the chapter you say there's there is really no good answer to that question. No, I, I don't think I've ever stopped to count any of my friends in any of their races. And I don't know if I would recommend anyone does that. But that's sort of the the 
complexity of baited, right? Is it's baiting you into answering impossible questions. It's almost like a cultural litmus test, but for our viewing pleasure, like for comedic effect, rather than like the conservative route where you're testing them in order to like to skewer them for not having the same ideals as you. Right. I understand that. Yeah. On, in the more conservative talk show world, you're skewering someone um, for not having the same opinion, not having the same mindset, not having the same, as you mentioned, their I- ideals. Within, within this show, you were, you were um, operating in sort of in a similar way, if I'm understanding that correctly. But through the lens of comedy, you can actually maybe reveal something a little bit more. Totally. I mean, this is pulled from like the Tucker Carlson, Megyn Kelly book of journalism where they would you know they would talk about barack obama wearing a tan suit and be like this is the hip-hop president his suit is the devil and every question they would ask or surrounding this man would be so would be in such bad faith and i found that to be well obviously bad for democracy but more more so funny hilarious and i wanted to capture the way in which the journalist was the antagonist and i did that with my interviews as well are indians the black people of asians you want a sound bite yeah i want a sound bite who were your comedic influences growing up Ooh, comedic influences going yeah like who did you watch and go like oh i like that that's a great. I watched a lot of animation, honestly. But right. Tina Fey was a really big influence for me, as well as Stephen Colbert was a huge influence for me. Like satire, I remember getting introduced to satire my freshman year of high school, and my mind was open. This was Stephen Colbert hosting the White House Correspondents' Dinner, and this is where he jokes about Shady. Chain, uh, Vice President Dick Cheney shooting someone in the face. And I did not know you you were allowed to speak like that in front of adults. Um, and it, I thought it to be so shocking and so powerful that it sort of motivated me to use my words in such a sharp way as well. We, act, we have that clip. Maybe we can listen to it together. Take a listen. Wow, what an honor. The White House Correspondents' Dinner. To actually, to, to sit here at the same table with my hero, George W. Bush, to be, to be this close to the man. I, I feel like I'm dreaming. Somebody pinch me. <laughs> you know what? I'm, I'm a pretty sound sleeper. That may not be enough. Somebody shoot me in the face. <laughs> Z-Way, what, what goes through your mind listening to that now? I mean, that joke still hits. Yeah. <laughs> it's a decade later. It's hilarious. I, I just think that that sort of social commentary is so powerful especially because it doesn't feel too mean because we're laughing at it um so i think that like comedians get away with a lot because of the way that in which they present their thoughts and i really i will always go back to that speech because it is just so deft and especially during that bush era it was so so impactful and powerful and honest i mean it doesn't feel to mean because we're laughing at it, but it's also so, it's also confrontational. It's deeply, deeply confrontational, but it's honest. It's based on the truth. And that is what I think is really liberating, which is like we can acknowledge this reality that we are all perceiving and we can laugh about it. And that, to me, I find really healing. So you mentioned that was a key moment for you in high school, watching the Colbert White House Correspondents' Dinner. I think we're around the same age. Like, I remember watching that and just having, like, knowing him from The Daily Show and The Colbert Report and just having my mind blown. Um, I was also really struck by the, the chapter you wrote about the moment in high school that, I'll quote you here, fundamentally changed my brain chemistry involving the director Spike Lee. Can, can you tell us that story? 
Oh, I mean, so yeah, Spike Lee came just, we, every week we'd have these all school meetings where a different guest speaker would come to speak or perform. Um, and on one particular week during Martin Luther, right, right around Martin Luther King Day, like that Monday or Tuesday, um, Spike Lee came and he spoke about his movies, honestly. And at one point during the question and answer part, he said without any hesitation that he thought that race was a merit and that that should be considered in application to college. And this was as I was applying to college in a very competitive atmosphere and it created chaos. (laughs) It created absolute chaos. And what's so interesting is how um, we're talking about things being prescient. This is such, like, even as I was writing this essay, we were going through the Supreme Court repealing affirmative action in the country. And so it's like this experience for me from 10 years ago is still, it's still revealing itself and unpeeling itself in different ways. You, I mean, you're absolutely right. When I was reading the, when I was reading um, Spike Lee talking to these students and sort of defending affirmative action, you're right. It, it dawned on me while I was reading it that just a few months ago, I mean, this this was being repealed in the in the Supreme Court. But how, like, I, I feel like that moment was particularly effective on on you. Like that had a a big impact on you. Why is that? I think because I did not have the language to agree with him I knew like I agreed that he was right but I couldn't express exactly why it was a merit and I couldn't defend myself as I was applying to colleges and getting into prestigious colleges why I deserved to go over peers who maybe didn't get in and there was a self-consciousness of like not feeling good enough or worthy enough and and at this really critical point in my adolescence where all we were talking about was like affirmative action Right, because high school students in your school were like arguing with him, like this luminary, this like this this giant of of art, and um, I mean, kind of thinking about race in America. High, well, high school students in your school were, were standing up and arguing with him, right? I mean, that's what I love about an American question and answer. You'll find you go to any Q and A in America, you're going to find someone who is not asking a question at all, and that is the <laughs> controversy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's the uh, 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 this is more of a comment that guy. Exactly. And it's like, oh, sweetie, no one wants to hear you speak. Um, but I mean, they spoke and they really shifted the table. So maybe it was ultimately net positive. I mean, but tell me if I'm being a bit reductive here. I'm seeing these two experiences. So like Colbert doing the White House Correspondents Dinner, Spike Lee having that confrontation with with your class and sort of giving you language for an injustice that you were feeling, but giving you a language to push back against it. Again, tell me if I'm being reductive, but like these things pushed together seem like they form your your comedic sense. Absolutely. I mean, it, it, under, it allowed me to realize that I had a voice and that I could use it in this these myriads of ways. So suddenly I'm realizing, oh, okay, there is a way to communicate the truth and be cutting and also be funny. And that is a profession that Stephen Colbert was able to do so deftly. Like, I want to do that job. That seems so exciting to me. And so as I was exploring with specifically with Baited, how do I write questions? What does what are these interviews look like? I was always sort of excavating for what is the truth I'm hoping to reveal, even in the non-truths that maybe my audience members or my guests would would reply back to me with. 
I love that so much. And then, so you were you were an intern at Comedy Central for a, a while, right? Like I know Seth Meyers was an intern at Comedy Central. Donald Glover oh, was. was? A, I did not know that. Yeah, Donald Glover was an intern at Comedy Central. I actually pulled up. Well, a, Donald Glover. Donald yeah. Glover did the program um, like two years before me, and I was such a uh, he was an idol of mine as well, and so I did the program because I heard that he had done it. Oh no way! So so I think I knew that by the way, but but the the uh, <laughs> I was just doing a performative talk show. Oh no way! Um, but uh, there's 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 a long list. I actually Googled before I started talking to you, like list of comedians who were, were interns to try and get trying to get a list for that for that question. But I'm always very curious about like what it's like to enter that sort of Comedy Central world as an intern when you want to be a comedian yourself. Like, what were those early days like for you when you were just trying to develop your own comedic voice? I mean, specifically as an intern, I think it's sort of revolutionary because I I was raised by Nigerian immigrants. I had this concept that you could only be a doctor or a lawyer. And then I go to this internship and I realize that, you know, being a professional comedian is a lot of the time it's actually just an office job and that it's so much more attainable than what I than what I give my credit for. I thought it was something that could not have ever happened in my lifetime and realizing it's just people sitting at a desk. <laughs> I, I I was really excited about that. Also during my internship, I was a really chatty intern and I got a joke on Colbert Report. And so suddenly it felt really within my reach. Okay, like I'm 20 years old and I'm just chatting my way and suddenly a joke of mine is appearing on screen. So it really just demystified the concept of TV, which I thought of like as this sacred being. Do you, do you remember the do you remember the joke? Yes, it was for about Prop 8 which was the ban in California for gay marriage and the lower third said gay set right. Gay set match. Gay set match. Yeah, like game set match. Yeah. It was like a lower third pun. Not my best writing, but still pretty good for a 20-year-old. It must have been pretty exciting to get a joke on, on the Colbert I Report. was delighted. I was like, my job here is done. I've done it all. Like, give me Miami. Well, I mean, it didn't It didn't really go that way. I mean, after the Colbert Report, you go on to build this. I mean, you end up a writer on Jesus and Mero. But um, you, you write this part of the book that, that really struck us here, that the success was not immediate. I'm just going to read it back to you here. You write, um, I went and looked for every opportunity I could to pursue writing comedy. I was rejected from the mall. I was rejected from the comedy newspaper. I was rejected from the stand-up club. I was rejected from the sketch comedy club only to reapply in a year and get appointed to the marketing department. When it comes to comedy, all I could do was fail, but I did not let being bad stop me. Can you talk to me a little bit more about that? Like, I'm, I'm, I think there's this um, – the reason I ask about it is not for, like, failure porn, but because I think that we're taught that there's, a, there's only sort of one path full of successes on the way. And I'm always sort of interested in the reality of that line. Like, does this rejection shape who you are as a comedian or is it just kind of a bummer? No, I actually believe in failure porn. And much like Michael Jordan, it hardened me and made me work work tw- three times as much. Um, on I, I, You don't know how humiliating it is to sort of get rejected from like the B group improv team. You know, so it's like the, to get rejected from the the A group it was hard. And then the second group was also worse. So I think it sort of made me dig my heels in because I had to really commit to the fact that what I wanted to do was comedy and that I was not going to let any teenager with um with a power trip at a college 
comedy club tell me what to do and i'm very lucky like or i guess i'm not very lucky because ultimately it was a lot of work i spent a lot of time like sitting alone in my dorm room writing jokes back to back to back and grinding i interned at the onion and then i was lucky enough to get a freelancer gig at the onion so then i was like contributing to the onion but that was all like blood and sweat um so I, w- and I was really bad. I wish I could tell you that they just didn't see my vision, but part of my vision was really, really terrible. Um, but <laughs> I was able over time, especially in the comfort of being alone, I was able to refine my voice and to find what actually made me personally laugh. But it was at the time, you don't know how it's going to end. I don't know if anyone will ever embrace my comedy. I don't know if it's any good. I just have to keep my head down and continue on my path until I quit or something happens. And I was lucky enough that something happened. That's the first part of my conversation with the comedian and writer Z-Way. Uh, coming up, more of our conversation where, get ready, we get nerdy about media theory. That's coming up on Q. One of the best shows of the year, according to Apple, Amazon and Time, is back for another round. This season, we're diving deep into some of McCartney's most beloved songs. Yesterday, Band on the Run, Hey Jude. And McCartney's favourite song in his entire catalogue, here, there and everywhere. Listen to season two of McCartney, A Life in Lyrics on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. In my head, you are the king of chaos. White male chaos. No. Yes, like mm-hmm. I, th- I see this as antithesis. Like, no. Because I, I have to be prim, I have to be proper, because no. I get described as mean and angry. Really? Easily. No. Yes. That sucks. I, I, Thanks for telling me racism sucks. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. You're in the middle of my conversation with the comedian and writer Z-Way. That clip you just heard is from Z-Way's talk show, uh, also called Z-Way, which ran for two seasons on Showtime. That's a little bit of her interview with the actor Adam Pally. Z-Way's show was only able to happen because she hosted this kind of confrontational comedy show called Baited on Instagram Live that blew up during the pandemic. That's something that couldn't have happened a decade ago because the technology to do that just literally didn't exist. So I mentioned this uh, in a minute, but I've been reading a lot of Marshall McLuhan recently, the Canadian professor who wrote and studied media. So reading that and getting ready for this interview made me think, you know, for someone like Z-Way who got her big break on new media with Instagram Live and then ends up getting a TV show on old media like Showtime, which then gets taken off the air. What do you learn through all that? You created something that 10 years ago when you had to rely on uh, someone with a cigar and suspender saying, come on now, sweetie, you can have a show like that, 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 you know, 10 years ago, that wouldn't have happened. And I guess the reason that's been on my mind is just thinking about specifically you using Instagram live and kind of blowing up on Instagram live. And it reminded me of this conversation I had with Roy Wood Jr. just a couple of weeks ago. And we were talking about his decision to not take The Daily Show. And we ended up talking about kind of media theory. He said the thing about The Daily Show is that it's an older form that we prize, but it's an older form that takes up so much of your creative energy. And he was wondering when he decided not to go for it, whether or not it was was worth it. 
I think of you, Ziwe, as someone who sees a lot of like potential in new media. Like, for instance, again, this thing blew up on Instagram Live. So I understand you have this book now, but like, how do you think about where you want to take this character and you into sort of media in the, in the future? That is a great question. I love this. Okay, so if, if my career is a testament to anything, as I just spoke about my experience in college flopping constantly and then my experience as adult creating my own path which led me to the institution of showtime it is that i did not wait for gatekeepers to give me permission to do my comedy to do my art and so if you're talking about how i embrace new media i don't know i have no <laughs> idea what honestly i don't know what what will be good x tiktok LinkedIn, I have no idea what's going to be the hot website. All I know is that I have my art and my work in my hands, and I'm going to put that forward. And I know that I am going to continue to grow an organic audience that does not rely on any institution to succeed. And that is like the lesson that I can offer people listening, which is that you have to build it yourself. I actually think that what we're watching in comedy is this like shift towards touring. And so I started off as a stand-up, and then and I, but I never toured before, toured before. And then I did my first tour ever um, in last last month. Literally on Saturday, I was in Toronto, and I did about eighteen or nineteen cities, and it was so exciting and so fun. And it, talk about having a like close relationship with your audience. Like I had been doing live shows four or five times a week before the pandemic in New York City. But now on tour, I'm going to Minnesota, I'm going to Denver, I'm going to San Francisco, I'm going to Philly. And my audience is in every single one of those cities. And they have different relationships with the city, with me, and what they find funny about me. And I'm kind of trying to figure out that relationship. Just, just to stay on that, the idea that like you have to build your, your own audience... Isn't the lesson also that you can? Like, if you think about the idea of a stand-up in, like, 1971, we were talking about, like, I mean, I've heard this in every goddamn documentary I've ever seen. Is like, Johnny Carson would bring you out, and then the next day your, your life would change. Or, you know, Warren Littlefield would come in down from NBC and watch you do stand-up at the cellar, and, or not the cellar, the comedy store, and then, like, give you a sitcom, and you'd, it would change your life, and you'd be... But there weren't even opportunities for you to build y- your own audience back then in the same way. Like, is, isn't the lesson not only you have to build your audience, but you actually can now, and you don't need these people? You're right. With new media, you like you with new media, you have more of a relationship with the people who are consuming your work because they're your followers. If you're on Substack, you get literally their email. You can comment and respond in the comments that they leave on your page. Like there is a direct connection, which is again so valuable. And you're right. Like you hear those stories that are like, Carson had me on the show and my life was was changed but then there's this one actually Joan Rivers story that really stuck with me was was that she was brought onto Carson the first time and she thought her whole life was going to be different and nothing changed about her life and I thought I I actually will never forget that story because it really to me reminded me about uh, like the tenacity of making it happen for yourself so again to your point like we're lucky enough with the current media landscape um, as you know, like we'll say like, oh, yeah, sometimes media does like lead to a rise of like censorship and fascism, whatever, blah, blah, blah. There are bad things to social media. Sure. Right. But the good things to social media are that I can der- I can put out my work and release it. And there is no middleman. And the people who if they love it, they will come. 
It's a, it, it was a really powerful thing to see that happen on, on Instagram Live. I know we're running out of time with you, but I just wanted to ask one more question. And, and again, it is sort of like a, a, a bit of a heady question, but one I've been thinking about a lot. I had someone on the show a couple of weeks ago, and we were talking about the idea of like mask work. I should say that I'm like I'm a, I'm a folk musician. I don't have any sort of background in like plays or, or theater whatsoever. So I, I was asking them sort of like very reductive questions about mask work. And I said, you know, when you when you wear when you like what's what's the function of wearing like a mask on on stage? And they said, through wearing a mask, through being a character, we are able to reveal our, our truest selves. And I went, well, I guess, yeah, I guess that, that kind of makes sense to me. But I wondered about that in, in, in reading your book. I mean, you talk a lot about in, in this book, the people in this book who helped you understand your identity and your, and your, your blackness better. But the satire you do through this character of Z-Way, has it allowed, to express, allowed you to express parts of yourself that you might not be able to otherwise? Honestly, I agree with that quote, if only because when you are yourself on screen, you, I am worried about being likable. I'm worried about having the correct politics, not offending anyone. Versus when I am a character, I have the freedom to be wrong and loud and let that create the world around me in which I critique, right? So there's just more freedom creatively in being able to hide behind that mask and have it have a really strong perspective. And whatever that perspective is, you can undermine it, you can emphasize it, but it's it's something that you are working through in the course of an episode. It's interesting when your character is your name. Like, I even feel like doing this job. I don't even really know what this is. Is this a performance? Is this an authentic conversation? But it's weird to have your name be the thing. Like, you know, like I'm not, I'm, my name, my real name's not like Don Johnson or anything like that. Totally. So when you're, when you're able to be a, um, when you're able to both be yourself and a character at the same time, it frees you of some of the worries and anxieties of real life. Yeah. I kind of feel like if you're in front of a camera, it's a performance regardless, even if it's subconscious, like even in the interviews, people are performing outrage or, or, or doubling down. So I think that just being plain spoken and saying this is a character allows me freedom to express what I actually think and what and how I actually want to make this conversation work. Um, so it's I think it's our, our, an artistic choice that is beneficial to the audience. Zwei, I love talking to you. Thank you so much for the time. Oh, thanks for talking to me, Tom. It was such a pleasure. Thanks so much to Z-Way. Uh, I love getting a chance to talk to her. I've been looking forward to talking to her ever since I spent my pandemic watching her videos. Uh, well, watching, actually, I watched some of those Instagram live lives when they happened. So a great joy to talk to her. Uh, the other conversation we put up today is something, I mean, I don't, yeah, he's never been on the show before. My conversation with the legendary Donald Sutherland. Uh, he's the order. He's in the Order of Canada. You know, he's one of the most decorated Canadian actors of all time. But he says the greatest honor is his most recent one, which is being honored on a Canada Post stamp. 88 years old, a great and very funny conversation with Donald Sutherland. Go check that out wherever you got this podcast. See you soon. Later on. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.